You done grinding beans? Okay. Good. Okay. Make sure she wasn't gonna be like. She said she's only gonna watch TV. I'm not moving things around. Broadband internet service providers in real simple syndication are proud to bring you Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. That is Jordan, and that over there is Carlin. Today we're going to be tackling yet another fan pick. Uh, this is a 1999 film called The Talented Mr. Ripley. Yes. Yes. And uh, I think this movie is pretty well known, all things considered. It's uh, it's definitely one of the more, more interesting movies that we've watched in a long time, I think. Um, yeah. This movie actually, as you mentioned, was a fan selection. It was uh, suggested by our friend Tim Morgan. Uh, so thank you very much, Tim. It's thank it's, you, Tim. It's a pretty good movie here. Um, I don't think actually Tim has seen it. We were actually going through Netflix one night. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Oh, that I hear that's a good movie. Maybe you guys should review oh, that." Oh, so one. it was his fan pick, and he hasn't seen yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Well, Tim, I recommend to you if you're listening to this and you have not watched it yet, stop, go watch it, then come back to the podcast. Yeah, but definitely come back to the podcast. Yeah, because this. Let me make sure this is going to be a good one. Yes. Um, so let's go ahead and uh, jump right into uh, the director, the Netflix summary, all that good stuff. Because uh, I feel like we're going to have a lot to say about this movie. A lot. So the Netflix summary. A charming sociopath maneuvers into the lush life of a young heir. But as he embraces the posh lifestyle, he'll stop at nothing to hold on to it. And this film is from 1999. I'm not sure if we mentioned that already. Yep, I said that in the beginning. Okay, well... We just said it again. And uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it was uh, uh, directed by Anthony Minkella, who is a pretty well-known director, and for a pretty good reason. He's got a lot of really good films on his resume. He also adapted the screenplay on this one. Yes. And it's adapted from a 1955 novel that was written by Patricia Highsmith. Yeah, and the novel is considered to be a pretty classic novel as well. Yeah, well... And I think that the fact that in 1999 there was a film made based on it, and it was from 1955, I think that establishes classic. Yeah. Considered yeah. a classic, because otherwise I don't think they'd be mining material that was that old. I think Minghella has done films based off of other novels as well. I mean, he was the director for Cold Mountain. And writer and director for yeah. Cold Mountain. And, and I believe that that was a novel adaptation as well. I think so. And he was also writer and director for The English Patient, which was a big film at that time. Yeah, yeah, big film, especially for Colin Firth fans. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then he, another film that he did in 1990 was Truly, Madly, Deeply. Mm-hmm. So he's done a lot of great stuff. The cast of this movie is, uh, I guess you could call it star-studded. Uh, you got uh, a lot of great names here. Uh, the main character, Tom Ripley, is played by Matt Damon. Yep. And, of course, Matt Damon is known for all sorts of different movies. Like, um, he was in Saving Private Ryan, Goodwill Hunting. Uh, he was in the Bourne trilogy. Right. Um, what was that uh, science fiction movie he was in a few years ago? The one with the exoskeleton. Elysium. Elysium, mm-hmm. which was okay, um, not great. I kept on falling asleep during it. He was uh, in, he was in a, a Kevin Smith film that I really enjoyed, Dogma. He played yeah. Loki in Dogma. Mm-hmm. That was a really good one. And I think Dogma and I believe Dogma and uh, Goodwill Hunting he was in before the talented mm-hmm. Mr. Ripley. He was also in the Monuments Men, which was a, a Clooney film. I want to see that. Uh, I've seen parts of it. Um, look good. It looked good, um, and the thing about the thing about um, uh, he works well with Clooney. They've worked they've worked together in the past. Oh, um, Ocean's Eleven. Ocean's Eleven, Contagion. Um, That's he, also a good film. Yeah, he was also in uh, the Green Zone. Uh, what He's was done he? a lot of good stuff. The Informant. If you haven't seen the I Informant, I hear it's good. Oh, it's so good. It's based on a true story um, about price fixing in the corn market. Okay. Um, and it, it it's just amazing. He did voice work for the American uh, dub of Ponyo. Uh-huh. And uh, so, I mean, he does he, a lot. Yeah, he and he does around. a good job. He does a really good job. And I will say this film is no exception. I thought he was 
phenomenal. He was mm-hmm. on his game when he was in this film. And it was really funny to see him so young. Yeah, he looked really young. He like, looked... I, I would peg him around like 20 or something. Yeah, like that yeah. young, like early 20s. And he was just incredibly accomplished in this film. He brought his A game. Another character uh, in this film was Marge Sherwood. Uh, and that was played by Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, and she did a, a pretty good job in this movie. I think um, Gwyneth Paltrow has received a lot of flack recently for some of her more interesting dietary ideas and everything like that. And so uh, it, it's good to see uh, this movie where she was so good. Um, she's, you know, been in the in the um, Iron Man series, um, which has received a lot of acclaim. Um, she was in the Avengers. Uh, also, she was in Conta- Contagion. Yes. Um, so uh, th- th- I guess that was kind of a, a rematch for both of them. Also, in a film that I love, Seven. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Yeah, and she was uh, she was in, uh, ironically enough, uh, the Truman Capote film Infamous, uh, which is uh, kind of interesting, um, and also uh, Shallow Hal. So she's done a lot of uh, really good she's stuff. Done as a well. lot of stuff. Yeah. And then we have who? Well, playing Dickie Greenleaf, yes. who is the uh, the heir that is mentioned in this movie, is Jude Law. Jude Law, also very accomplished. Yes. Uh, and again, Cold Mountain. Yep. Yeah, and he's also been in the, the latest Sherlock Holmes franchise as Watson. Um, and some other ones that he's been in. He was in uh, Gattaca. Yes. Uh, and, and Gattaca is the film that I really know him from, and, and I really enjoyed that movie quite a bit. He was in Contagion as well. So you can see that there's a lot of overlap. I really liked him in a um, uh, Cronenberg film, uh, Existence. Yeah. That was a fun one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was also in uh, um, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, which is Heath Ledger's last film. Yep. And uh, that, that film, if you haven't seen that one, it's a, it's a fa- smaller, less known film, but it's pretty amazing. Oh, another one of my favorite films, I Heart Huckabees. He was great in I Heart Huckabees. Yeah. I love that film. And then um, the two two more actors. Kate uh, Blanchett played Meredith Ro- uh, Logue. Which I will say, I often do not see her in a typical, like, attractive female role. No. You often see her in these, like, odd character roles. Right. Like, um, she, was in, she was in How to Train Your Dragon 2. Um, but she was also in the Lord of the Rings movies and, yes. and as Galadriel. Yeah, and she looked really odd in yeah. that film. And and I know that was probably intentional. That's, like, as ethereal and everything like she that. She was also in a film where she was supposed to be playing, like, Bob Dylan. Yeah. there were th- Well, that film was interesting because there were, like, five or six different actors and actresses who played um, Bob Dylan. Uh, she was also in, again, uh, she was in The Monuments Men. So there's a lot of overlap in these yeah. in these careers here, um, and she was in a a, a a smaller movie called Hannah in 2011, which oh, was yeah. pretty good. I saw that one. Pretty mm-hmm. yeah, pretty good. Not great, but good. She was in Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz was fun. That was a lot of fun. And the the Bob Dylan movie that you were talking about is I'm Not There. There it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that was the name. And then finally, one last actor to mention, playing the role of Freddie Miles. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Look, he was my favorite part of the film. Yeah. He, was just, he wasn't a huge part of the film, but the way he played the character of Freddie Miles, he was an ass, like a, a total asshole, but he did it with such flair yeah. that it was so enjoyable to see. And he was, he was kind of creepy in this movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, a little bit. Just the way he like played the character. Yeah. My favorite part with him, though, is when... Um, uh, the character of Tom Ripley is kind of like watching um, Dickie Greenleaf and Marge have sex on the boat, and Freddie notices that that's what he's doing, and he's like, "How's the peeping, Tom? Yeah, how's the peeping going, huh? How's the peeping?" And yeah. he just keeps saying it. It's just like, <laughs> it's just awkward. He's definitely the type of guy who just pushes people's buttons for fun. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's established from the get go when he shows up. And so some some movies, other movies that he's been in. If you haven't heard our review of Capote, go ahead and go back and listen to that yeah, one. Yeah, he did a phenomenal job yeah. at Capote. Um, some other movies that he's been in include Moneyball. Uh, great the, movie great as well. Movie. Uh, the Eyes of March, which is uh, yeah. another Clooney movie um, that was really good. 
Um, he was also in Pirate Radio. Oh, that's great. That's a fun movie, isn't it? Yeah, he's really good in that role, too. Yeah, so... He had a smaller role in The Big Lebowski. Mm -hmm, He did, and Um, he was also in Charlie Wilson's War. He was in Happiness. Happiness is a screwed-up film, but a pretty good film. And also, again, Cold Mountain. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so just just the amount of work that these actors do with each other. That's also something that's really interesting, because you see a bunch of different actors playing different characters but working together at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that's that's not always an interesting dynamic to watch. Yeah. This film, uh, there was a kind of sequel movie that was also made for it called Ripley's Game in, that came out in 2002. So if anyone was interested in this one, they might want to look for Ripley's now, Game. Now, was that based off of Highsmith's work at all? I or? think so. I'm not 100% sure. Don't quote me on it. Okay. Uh, another thing is this this film was originally done or well the book material was used to make another film uh, back in 1960 it was called Plain Soleil which was a French slash Italian film that translated to Purple Noon hmm interestingly enough this was a Christmas Day release in 1999 really? Christmas yeah. Day Christmas Day uh, the film had was nominated for five Academy Awards uh, including Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Jude Law, uh, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Original Score, and Best Adapted Screenplay. So it was, I guess you could say, a success. Yeah, very, very much a success. And Jude Law was, Jude Law as Dickie Greenleaf actually got a lot of, got the the Best Supporting Actor nod, which was pretty good. I think this movie is kind of seen as putting him on the map. I'm going to look up well, you talk about other things. Okay. What, what the um, what this was grossed basically at the box office because we're saying it was a success. Yeah. I want to see how successful monetarily it was. Yeah. I mean, that's not the, always the greatest judge of how good a movie is, but it does certainly help in in show what kind of acclaim. Also, around that being released around Christmas time, I wonder if this movie was a bit of a, a, a like a kind of Academy Award bait like some movies yeah. are. Yeah. Well, it, okay, I got it. The budget was $40 million, Okay. And it grossed in the box office $128,798,265. So basically, it brought in like over three times the amount of money spent on the film. Yeah, it brought in like $88 million. Yeah. So, I mean, like that's what they made off of it. So that's, and that's just box office. So, yeah. pretty nice success there. Yeah. Um, and like I said before, it's really funny to see a young Matt Damon like yeah. just just eating this role up. Now I have a question to you because I'm not sure about like the the the, the actual definition of a sociopath. But did his character seem like a sociopath to you, or just someone with a lot of issues? Well, okay, here's the thing. And I was thinking about that too. I actually looked up, had looked up the definition of sociopath, but for a different reason. Okay. Not for his character, but um, I'll tell you in a second. I'm, I'm going to pull up the the d- definition of sociopath right here uh, and read it to everyone. Uh, a person with a um, psychopathic personality whose behavior is antisocial, often criminal, and who lacks a sense of moral responsibility or social conscience. So. I think he can fit into that, but I think he could also easily just fit into being kind of a person that just doesn't connect. Um, I think what really you can point to and say sociopathic is his criminal tendencies. The fact that he is fixated on becoming another person and doing obviously amoral things in order to reach that situation. Yeah. Granted, the worst things that he does kind of are accidental, like the, the murders... But then it kind of becomes out of necessity well, for Dick, him. Dickie's murder is definitely an accident. Oh, total accident, which he feels remorseful for. Right, but so, Peter's act murder again, he feels remorseful for it. Right, but it's but not as much it. of an an accident on that. Yeah, regard. exactly. And the fact that he's having feelings about it, I, it kind of makes me question the sociopathic yeah. tendencies. I will say though, when I was watching the film, I looked up the definition of sociopath because I felt like if you look at Tom Ripley. And then you look at Dickie Greenleaf, they're both sociopaths. Yeah. I think Dickie Greenleaf is more so of a sociopath because he feels no remorse for what he does. And it's revealed at the end of the movie that he actually put somebody in the hospital because they talked to a girl that he was interested in. Yeah, and he had violent tendencies. And you kind of wonder, 
in the situation where Tom Ripley kills Dickie Greenleaf, could it have been the other way around had, you know, things not, you know, had if, he not hit him with a boat oar? Yeah, if one of them, if, if Dickie had grabbed the oar first, then it would have been a totally different story. Yeah. And, right, and I do think that, based on that definition, that Dick Dickie was a sociopath. Yeah. And, you know, you really see it in the fact that he was just, like, jumping from woman to woman. But not only was he jumping from woman to woman, he was also jumping from friend to, to friend. friend. Yeah. It was, like, he only had time for one person, one love interest and one friend at that time. Right. And so if you were a friend of his or a love interest of his, if he had another one there that was a little bit newer he hadn't seen in a while, um, that was his flavor of the moment and you're yeah. forgotten, you're cast aside. That screams pretty sociopathic to me. Yeah. And he really would just, like, latch on to, to one person or one thing, and that was his thing. And then he'd just be like, ah, oh, I'm just going to play this. I'm done with the saxophone, now I'm going to play drums. Yeah, and so there were a lot of similarities between Tom Ripley and Dickie Greenleaf because of that. And I think the, the major difference between the two of them is that Dickie had money. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, so it's more accepted mm -hmm. that Dickie acts the way he does because that's his money. But there's this whole theme going through it of like, oh, God, having all this money is such a curse. Well, but you're accepting it. Like, you have a choice. You can make that choice to say you don't want it. You can cut yourself off. You can go out and make money on your own. Yeah. You know, you can forge your own path. And there are people in life who choose to do that. But there are people who do the opposite. And, you know, like someone like Paris Hilton. She's just famous for having money, you right. know, that she didn't earn. So... I mean, she does earn it from time to time doing other things. She's done some acting. She's done singing. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, even even for her reality TV show, she's getting paid for that. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so she does actually money. earn her own living. But where did the reality TV show come from? It came from the fact that she was rich. Right, and did nothing to be rich. Right, exactly. So she's a good example of the person who does not decide to strike out, who's just like, I have money, I don't need to do anything. And everything just kind of falls into her lap. Yeah, so it's... And I thought about it a lot while watching this film. It's ridiculous that people are just like, well, that's fine for Dickie to be the way he is just because that's his money. But it's not his money. It's just right. like... It's, it's, a, it's his dad's money. It's family money, so he's entitled to it. But then you see someone like Tom Ripley, mm -hmm. who's trying to live off someone else's money, and you have people calling him out on it, mm -hmm. saying, well, you're li living off the money of Mr. Greenleaf. Right. You're kind of a parasite. You're yeah. a leech. Well, Dickie's doing the same thing, and people are just like, well, that's fine, because he's that guy's son. Yeah. But here's the thing. He likes... The father likes Tom, Tom a lot more, more than, than he likes, he likes his, his own, own son. son. Yes. Yeah, but that the funny thing is that his like, uh, uh, his like of Tom is based off of his perception that Tom went to Princeton, has his upstanding career as a musician, mm -hmm. you know, all, all of these suppositions that he makes because Tom fills in for somebody. Right. You know, and and the thing is that Tom just lets him go along with these presuppositions. That's one of the first things that I wrote down. It's funny to see how little it takes to build a connection with someone. A Princeton jacket, an American accent, and, and uh, some musical interest. That's all that's needed. Yeah. Well, one of the things I wrote down is that it's interesting to see how, and this does happen in real life, how people's defenses melt away mm -hmm. as soon as you have something you can share in common with yep. them. As soon as you say, like, oh, I'm into the same sporting team, or I have the same hobby, right. whatever, the person goes from being defensive automatically to yeah. the wall just coming down and being like, oh, well, tell me more. Let's talk. Let's. You just feel automatically more friendly. And that plays out very well in this film yeah. because Tom does that. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing is they figure out later that he was lying the whole time. Well, he pretty much tells, tells Dickie from the very beginning... Dickie asks him, what do you do? And he's like, I lie and I steal. Yeah. But the interesting thing is, because the wall's already down, because he shared some moments of interest yeah. with him, even though he knows it's all a lie, he's still like, we're still cool because now I like you. Yeah. And it's so weird. But it also made me start thinking about, you know, obviously, it's and the title says it all, the talented Mr. Ripley. He's very talented at you know, forging signatures and, yeah. and, you know, talking like other people and looking like them and, you know, convincing people that he's someone he's not and figuring out on the fly how to adapt in situations. Um, I was looking at that aspect of it and I just realized how 
people a lot of time want to be agreeable in, in conversation. So it really was easy for Tom Ripley, who that's not even his real name. That's just who you refer to him as mm-hmm. in this. You don't even know what his real name is. It's, it's easy for him to get people to agree with him because, because people want to agree. So he just kind of steamrolls people in conversation is just like, oh yeah, you know, here's my, here's my reasoning for this and I can explain that with this. As long as you sound confident, yeah. you can get someone to just nod their head and say yeah and not question it. Well, and that's one of the things that, that, we, that we take for granted is the ability to act confident and to be accepted into social situations. Like there was um, recently I was at a picnic where I didn't know a bunch of people. But, you know, I sat down at a table across from somebody and I just struck up a conversation mm-hmm. and we wound up having a good time because, you know, instead of being, you know, closed off and in our own little groups, we, we actually, I actually sought somebody else out to talk to that I didn't know. So you find out some interesting things from people that way. And also, like you said, it helps build trust. If someone shows confidence and they go to approach somebody, the other person is going to respond to the, to the perceived um, attitude of the other individual. Yeah. You know? Well, um, let me give you a story from my life okay. that, that fits into what we're talking about. I, I don't think I've said anything about it on this podcast. I may have on some other podcast. I don't know. But forgive me if this is retreading what, what I've already said. But it, it fits into what we're talking about. When I was in college, you know, as a partier, you know, we'd go out and we'd have some drinks. We went to a bar one time and there were two levels to the bar. There was a, a bottom and a top. And the top was rented out for a wedding reception. We had a buddy who worked at the bar, and he said, hey, why don't you come out the back door with me? I'll take you up the fire escape, and we'll get you up into the top, and you can just, it's open bar. You can get in there, and you can just have whatever you have want. drinks, just blend in. So we did. We went in there, and we were approached by someone who just started talking to us. They are like, oh, who are you guys? I don't recognize you. And they were like, oh, are you, are you Uncle Nick's kids? And my friend and I were like, yeah, we're Uncle Nick's kids. And we just played along with it. And we had a great time with these people. They just accepted us and thought we were someone we were not. There, and there you go. Had we said something to them like, no, we're not. Um, we're not Uncle Nick's kids. The wall would have still been up. And these people would have been like, get the hell out of here. You know, what yeah. are you doing? But when you say, yeah, you know, and we were confident about it, we were like, yeah, we're Uncle Nick's kids. And they asked us some questions. We just made stuff up. Right. And they were like, oh, yeah, Uncle Nick couldn't make it, blah, blah, blah. Because he was like, oh, I didn't see Uncle Nick. Um, and we drank for free all night and had a really good time with these people. It's just weird because you're the same person no matter what. Right. But when you lie to someone and they and you're confident about it and they believe you, Whereas if you would just be truthful about it, they hate you. You're still the same person and you're still acting the same. You're just conditioning their perception of you. Yeah, it's so weird and it's so interesting. And that's totally on display in The Talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah. And it just made me think about that. Another movie that makes me think about this is the um, the Leonardo DiCaprio film. Catch Me If You Can. Catch Me If You Can. Yes. When I was watching this film, I immediately thought of Catch Me If You Can. And I wrote it down at one point. And that is a perfect example of another film where it showcases that. If yeah. you're confident and you can think quickly, um, you can get away with a lot of Pretty stuff. Pretty much anything. Yeah. Pretty much anything. One of the things that uh, it struck me um, pretty quickly on is, you know, how beautiful the movie the movie actually is. Um, oh, cinematography is Cinematography is great. Um, Not only that, but the location scouting... I had I had written down um, if there's a place to run away to it's Italy Italy isn't a bad choice mm, it I looks mean, beautiful oh my and goodness they do a really good job of showcasing the beauty of Italy in the film mm-hmm. and that's something that always speaks to me when I'm watching a film I don't just want to see what's on the screen for dialogue and the actions that are going on but if you can give me something nice in the background to right. focus on as well it's a plus well and also it was it was like interesting to see how um different cultures interact with each other because you know american culture in the the movie is set in the 50s so yeah. world war ii is still fresh in everybody's memory yeah. you know so the idea that americans are just going over there and they're having fun and everything like that it's seen america is still seen as the land of opportunity they they sing the um jazz classic at one point in the song americano Americano, Americano, you know, and it's talking about like, the song's talking about how you go from 
wherever you were, and then you go to America and you get the Jeep, you get the you get the cigarettes, you get the golden rings, you get the girl, you get everything you want in America. So there's this idea that, you know, you get these things by going somewhere else. And Dickie's taken the same idea. But he's gone to Italy. But he's gone to Italy. And so is Marge, because Marge was originally American. She decided, I need to go back to Europe so I can write my novel. (laughs) Inspiration. Exactly. Well, going along with, you know, the cityscape and the landscape of Italy, I think it also is a great setting because it really gives the message to the viewer that this is a nice, high-class, relaxed place where... You know, Dickie inhabits this, and he's just... He, he doesn't have anything to worry about. No. Like, he's got nothing going on in his life. There's no stress. It's play all the time. And just the landscape um, gives that message. Yeah. So, very, very smart choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know what? Honestly, as an aside, I would love to go and read the actual novel Yeah. to see how different it is. Like, what if, what if Italy wasn't the choice? What if it was, like... Argentina or something. How how different would the story be? Yeah, you know, if it was uh, someplace different. Um, one of the things that this film is is hailed for, and the book as well, um, is the fact that it makes people like the sociopath character. Yeah. In uh, yeah. Tom Ripley, and that's because he is the main character, and typically people want to like whoever the main character is. But also, there are so many tidbits of his life and the actions that happen in the film that you feel for him because he, you know, doesn't kill um, Dickie because he wants to necessarily. It, it seems a little bit out of necessity at the time because, you know, he makes a mistake and he just kind of accidentally crossed the line and then now Dickie's going to try to kill him, so it's kill or be killed. And there are a lot of these unfortunate things that happen yeah. to him. And you also are able to relate with him and see, you know, he comes from pretty much nothing. And yeah. he wants what Dickie has. And he's also in love with Dickie, you can tell that as well. And he's also trying to closet himself. You know, yeah. he's a closeted homosexual. And he's trying to, you know, figure out how to be himself when he's not allowed to, typically. I wonder, I, I'm actually wondering if he's actually a bisexual character. Well, and... Here's another thing. I'm wondering if he's not even homosexual or bisexual, but confusing he's, his feelings of wanting to be someone else yeah. with wanting to be with someone else. Yeah, yeah. and, and it, the, the best way to describe Tom Ripley's relationships with people in this movie is confused and complicated. Well, his, his whole existence. Yeah, his whole life is. And, you know, at one point later on in the movie, he's talking about being someone who has demons in the basement of his soul that he can't let out, and he's afraid because people are going, are, are going to judge him for that. Right. And he meets this other character who's very understanding, uh, Peter. Um, yeah. And Peter seems like a genuinely nice guy. Very nice guy. Um, and is, I believe, also is actually a homosexual as well. Yeah. And um, Peter really takes Tom under his wing, and it looks like they're actually developing a relationship. You know, probably the best relationship, the healthiest relationship that, in the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. And and so it's especially sad when, when he he kills him. when he has to kill when when he decides he has to kill Peter. And I think that the the switch of not showing that his death, Peter's death, was very intentional and very warranted. I think it worked out well to focus on the aftermath of you know, uh, Tom Ripley's face to yeah. show how deeply it affected him. Because you see the deaths of the people who he, you know, one person he was real close with, but some other people that he wasn't all that close with, but he had to do away with. Yeah. So you see him kind of mechanically taking care of that yeah. stuff, but it's a departure when it, this is the first, like, true relationship he could have. And you could tell that Peter liked him for who he was as a person, yeah. not what he represented um, because a lot of people just liked him because they at some point thought he was Dickie because he assumed Dickie's life yeah. uh, and also it was all a farce when he was playing Tom Ripley because he wasn't able to really show him well he was showing some of himself but he wasn't loved for it because Marge and Dickie really looked at him as oh look at it's so funny and cute because he's not rich and he doesn't know how to use a grapefruit spoon yeah. or you know that wasn't actually in the film but I'm just kind of you know well they treat him like he's some kind of pet 
Oh, they totally do that. Yeah. And so he's not even treated like an actual person. Yeah. And so the the first real relationship he has is with Peter. So that's why it's it is important that Peter's death is not on camera. Um, I thought that was very well handled. And it was also interesting to see how that was the very end of the movie. Like, the movie yeah. ends with Peter's death. Yeah. And so you don't see the consequences of what Tom is going through. You know, aside from that one look of horror on his face about what just happened. And that does set it up for potentially another film. Yeah. Because it ends and you I felt this way. I was like, well, what, what would happen next? Because he's not out of the woods. No, You know, Tom Ripley, there are still people who recognize him as Dickie and there are still people out there who recognize him as Tom Ripley. Yeah. So he could run into more people that complicate things. He might have to kill more people. I'm surprised he, did, he didn't... Well, Marge, Marge is a interesting character because it looked like he was going to kill her at one point in yes, the movie. he thought about it. Yeah, he seriously thought about it. And he would have if he hadn't been interrupted. Yeah, Peter hadn't shown up. Yeah. Um, I will say, though, there were there were a lot of times when I thought that, that Tom was going to take care of himself, that he, that he was going to kill himself. Yeah, I mean, it was close. Especially, like, the scenes early in the movie where he starts falling in love with Dickie. Um, like, the scene where they play chess... Yeah, and he he he, uh, Dicky is in the bathtub and they're playing chess, and Tom tries to get into the bathtub with, with Dicky, and I don't think Dicky recognizes what's going on. Uh, I think he did at first, but then he he, he dismisses it yeah. when, when Tom really plays it off and he's like, oh, I don't mean with you. I'm, yeah, so he's just like, oh, he gets out of the tub and yeah, walks away. Yeah. But then he catches him looking at him. Yeah, well, and, and then and but then, he but he brushes it off because here's the thing. Dickie never viewed Tom as a threat. No. Because he's lower class, because he's, in his opinion, kind of simple. He doesn't understand the lifestyle and everything. So right. he's not looking at him as an, as an equal, as another person. And that's where he greatly underestimates him, and that's what leads to his demise. You yeah. Know? Um, but throughout the film, you obviously connect with the character of Tom Ripley, um, which is kind of... If you really think about it, kind of screwed up because he is sociopathic. But if you're if you're connecting with Dickie too, you're also screwed up because yeah. he's sociopathic. But you're connecting with Tom because he stands in contrast to Dickie because Dickie is a douche. Like yeah, he's he's got all this money. He doesn't care about anything. He doesn't hold his relationships sacred. You know, he just jumps around and does whatever he wants, and you can't relate to that. Not only does he not hold his relationship sacred, he feels like it's perfectly okay to cheat on Marge. Yeah, and then, he can. And then when when the Italian girl that he knocks up or confronts him, he murders her. Yeah. You know, tosses her in the water. And Was it insinuated that he actually killed her? That uh, Dickie did? Yeah. I I didn't catch that. Yeah, I, thought the, the Dickie, that, I thought she killed herself. No, I think I think Dicky killed her. Like just like he attacked the the guy who was talking to the girl that he was interested in at Princeton. I think I think there's evidence in the film that Dicky was a was a serial killer. I disagree with you on that. I mean, that's an interesting take on it, and maybe, but I'm gonna have to disagree with you on this because I think there was a key moment where. Um, the woman, I forget her name, she was standing there watching Dickie on a, on the boat with um, Tom and Marge, and it looked like, it, it was, it, to it, me, She it looked really, very upset. She looked suicidal. So, you know, maybe it was a red herring, but um, I think she killed herself. But listeners, go back and check it out and see what you think. You can email us, too, and let us know. Yeah. Um, ex- most excellent movie night at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought. But anyway, and, well, I mean, it's just you look at you look at Dickie's life, and the private investigator tells Tom all sorts of horrible things about what Dickie has done, yeah. how he's behaved, and it wasn't that Dickie. The the way that it's implied earlier in the film is that Dickie has left to go on vacation, mm-hmm. and then just never really came back. But really, what happened was Dickie's father, Mister Greenleaf, sent Dickie away to avoid criminal charges. Yeah. For, for the incident at Princeton and some other things as well. So, you know, I think his his abusive behavior continued long after, you know, long before what was going on. And I, I think it was a matter of time before Marge would have been a victim as well. Yeah, I think so. Um, because with anyone who got close enough, yeah, 
he had to dispatch them at, at that point. And that and that's one of the things. It's tough in this film because you kind of want to root for him a little bit because he's coming from nothing and he just wants what he doesn't have. But the way he goes about it, it's obviously terrible. Yeah. Um, and then, but then you also see that even though he's getting what he wants, it's terrible existence because he can't he's have friends. And he's afraid all the time. He can't have legitimate relationships. He can't have friends. He's always on the run. He has to keep thinking about how to cover his tracks and how to masterfully orchestrate an illusion. Yeah. You know, that whole sequence where he's going between going to one hotel and and playing as Tom Ripley and then going to the other hotel and writing correspondence back and forth and leaving phone messages for each other as Tom and as Dickie. I mean, that's it's dizzying. It's crazy. It's like, how do you keep this stuff straight? It was smart. It was very smart, like, in well, terms of the film, because it yeah. set up a paper trail that made sure that the Italian police didn't figure out what was right. going on. And that and that speaks to, in this film, how smart the character of Tom Ripley is, yeah. which is really interesting and cool to watch. But it also speaks to how smart Patricia Highsmith was in writing the novel. Yeah. And... You know, creating such an intelligent, um, intricate web of of just uh, lies and and tricks and, and deceit. And yeah, it's crazy. And then I I think you also have to give credit to um, uh, Mingella for for adapting the book to screenplay and doing a good job picking the right stuff. You know, one of the interesting things that I think was interesting in a cinema cinematography choice that told a lot of the story was the use of mirrors throughout the movie. Yeah, you know, because there's a lot of times when, when uh, Dicky or not Dicky, but uh, Tom is looking into mirrors, and you can like they're like those um, three like three sided mirrors, you know what I'm talking about? Like there's one mirror in the center, and then two off to the side, so that you can kind of get a good view of your profile from a couple different angles, and so it shows like right on the crack, so it splinters Tom's image, which shows a lot of what's going on in his personality. Yeah. And then one of the one of the most interesting scenes in the movie to me was this time when uh, Dickie was in Rome with Tom, and Tom gets on the train and that he thinks Dickie is supposed to go on, but Dickie decides to get a ride back with Freddie, mm-hmm. and and Tom does not like Freddie because Freddie monopolizes Dickie's time. But I think also Freddie had a. Um had this uneasy feeling. I think he could kind of sense what Tom, Tom was Tom up to now, yeah. as just being a leech and not being who yeah. he said he was. Yeah, but but at this point, uh, Tom is is trying on Dickie's clothes. Yeah, you know, he gets caught. He gets caught, and he's standing there in his boxers and a tuxedo top. Yeah, you know, and so what does he do? He runs behind a mirror. That's a good point. You know, so he's using he's trying to reflect. Back onto Dickie, what he thinks Dickie wants to see, which is an image right. of himself. Well, that's what he does for everybody. Yeah, that's what he does life. for everybody. That's how he protects himself. But it's so interestingly laid out in a visual medium I agree. that this is what he does to try and protect himself, is that he tries to reflect what other people want to see. Not only that, but reflections are used very interesting way because there are many scenes where there are reflections of um, uh, Tom and, and Dickie they're like their faces coming together to yeah. be one, which is basically for foreshadowing and showing that um, Tom's becoming Dicky, like yeah. he's going to become Dicky. And then when Tom orchestrates the suicide note and everything of Dicky, he he's, scratches out Dicky's or Tom's well, face. On he scratches face. out his face, but also he goes to the piano, the new piano that's there, and as he closes the piano over the keys, you see his reflection split into two. Yeah, and that's a you know, a showing of he is tearing himself away from Dickie. Yeah. He's back to having the separation between Dickie and Tom, and he's leaving Dickie behind because he's assassinating that character yeah. well after he's actually killed the person. Well, and also you can see closing the piano keys as a symbol of finality. Yeah. You know, it's it's something where he's putting away what he was using. And the the interesting thing was the entire time that he was living in Rome as Dickie, he got to really indulge in his love of music yes. and his love of art and taste and culture. So he has to give that all away um, at the end of the film because he's decided to, quote-unquote, commit suicide with the Dickie character. Yeah. 
Um, one of the great, uh, oh, great, Jesus, great. <laughs> I'm getting a little tired here. Uh, so much energy into this. There's a great quote in here, and I forget who's, oh, I think it was Tom Ripley actually said it. He said, you never meet anyone who thinks they're a bad person. Yeah. And that is so true. So true. Every single person you meet, no one's like, I'm a terrible person. No, no matter if someone is a terrible person or they're a great person, whoever you meet always thinks they're a good person. And that was just so interesting, especially in the context of this film, because you've got some terrible characters, mainly Dickie and Tom, yeah. and they think they're great people. I mean, individually, they definitely think they're great people, but they're not. So I just thought that was a really good quote to have thrown in there because it's so freaking it's true. true. It's true. You know, I, and and the thing is that when we're with somebody, we don't want them. We don't want to think of them in a negative manner. Like if we're with somebody that we really like and we want to to continue on with a good relationship with them, there's a lot of times when um, when we're talking with them. And Marge is a perfect example of this because Marge. To to a certain extent, knows that Dick. She has to know that Dickie is a pretty negative personality to be around. Yeah, right. But she still stays with him. Well, I mean, you can easily see that in the fact that he keeps being like he's he's joyous about. It. He's like, should we spend some more of my dad's money? Yeah. Should we? What, what should we spend it on? Oh, we're gonna spend it. We're gonna get a car. Let's get a car. And then she's like, no, Let's we get should an get an icebox. Ice but then later, he's like, I love this icebox. I box. love this icebox. Like, Fuck this icebox. He actually says. <laughs> yeah, he does. He, that's a, a direct quote. Yeah. So, I he's he's a terrible person. I mean, he really is. So, in my opinion, you don't really feel for Dickie in this film. No. Just because he is so, so ridiculous. Twisted, 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 twisted. Yeah, and it, it's a perfect showing of, like, even though you have money, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be happy in no. life. If you don't have anyone to share that money with, you're going to have a miserable life. And you see that with Dickie, but then you also see it with Tom after the fact. Because he gets all the money that he wants, pretty much. Right. But he he can't share it with anyone yeah. because of the lies that he's living. Yeah, and 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 also it's interesting to see Freddie, because Freddie obviously has some kind of money one way oh, or yeah, another. Yeah. Um, but he also is not afraid to allow himself to be um, a bit of a a bit of a leech off of Dicky as well. Yeah. You know, and it's not so much. Uh, uh, like a money leech because obviously he drives a red convertible around. He's He's got uh, a lot of uh, income in and of himself, but he does things that are, that monopolize Dickie's time. Right. You know, and and then he also he goes to the apartment, he sees how Tom is dressed like Dickie, but the apartment is nothing like what Dickie would actually have for himself. Well, and I think that, um, you can see that Freddy it was a lot like Dickie in the sense that he kept jumping around from friend to friend. Yeah. Because it was said a few times, everybody who's anyone knows Freddy, basically. Yeah. So everyone of influence knows Freddy. So he's made a life of just being, going around and being known. Being a cad, essentially. And so I view him as, as doing the same thing Dickie was doing, where he jumps from friend to friend, and whoever he's with at that moment is his best friend at that moment. Yeah. And then he takes off, and it's the next person. And he would just kind of keep going in the in the circle and hitting all these friends because, you know, at one point Dickie's like, "Why don't you stick around?" And he's like, "No, nah, I got things. I got to keep moving. I got to keep going." Which means I got to find somebody else who's going to support my lifestyle. Yeah. So all these people were kind of turning out to be the same. All these people who are very well, rich, and, and well that, to do, and that talks about like the superficiality of culture in general. Yeah. Is that you know whatever we do, um, we're going to go ahead and put ourselves on this place where we're going to use other people you know and we're going to just you know be be friends with somebody only as long as it benefits us True. you know and, yeah. and you know this might seem like an odd example but think about how it is in the workplace oh yeah you know i don't i don't hang out with a lot of people outside of the office but when you're there you have people who are your friends for that time period exactly that's a good point you know you're there for eight hours a day with somebody of course you're going to be their friend you gotta be. If you if you don't get along with the people you work with, you're not going to. It's gonna be a terrible place. Exactly, to work. exactly. But then you leave the office. You don't think about those people. Right. You know, you don't get together with them on the weekend. You know, so it's it's like you're just using those people for the time that you're there, and then you're and then you're gone off somewhere else to do things with other people as well. I agree with that. You know, it's so hard 
to actually build a community where you're being real and authentic with anybody because you're so concerned about what other people think about you. That's so true. I think also, though, one other thing I want to throw in on that is that it's hard for people to have lots of friends. And I think a lot of people make the mistake of trying to have a lot of acquaintances versus having a small amount of good, true friends. Have you heard about the... um the study that showed that people who have over 350 friends on Facebook actually show a declining level of quality of life. I hadn't heard that, but it doesn't really surprise me because all that much. I mean, like, because they're they're spreading themselves so thin, they can't have deep connections not, with anyone. Not only are they spreading themselves so thin, but they're seeing all of the other things that people are posting to make themselves look good. So then the people have a negative self-image because they're not living up to the the, uh, the social expectations of the other people as well. Those people are becoming Tom Ripley's. Exactly. They want that and they can't have it and it's making them crazy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> On the topic of Tom Ripley, though, another thing I really want to point out about it, him is there are a lot of moments where you feel for him and where you can kind of relate to him. But there are also these intentional moments where you feel uneasy about him. Really creeped out by him. Yeah, and mainly to me, the ones that spoke to me the most is when he's doing his um, vocal impersonations of people. Very creepy. Uh, Not only does it sound creepy, but he keeps it up for an uncomfortable amount of time, and it just gets to a point where it's just like, okay, inappropriate, like you're taking it too far. Especially the one with with, uh, with, with Mr. Greenleaf. Right, and that was the very first time that he's yeah. doing the verbal uh, impersonation. And it really was this moment of just like, as an audience member, being like, ooh, he's off. Like, I liked yeah. him, but all of a sudden, like, it's reminding you, he's not right. Yeah. He's not yeah. right. Well, and also there's like... In addition to that, like, his personality changes so much when he wants someone to like him. Yes. And then when he's going to... Like, the scene where Freddy confronts him in the apartment, he gets this weird smile on his face. And Matt Damon does a fantastic job with that. Because yeah. it looks... He starts smirking like he doesn't know how to respond. So, obviously, the best response is to take a, a bust of a famous Italian and smash him over the head. Why not? Why not? Another way that they kind of set up for the, the audience members to expect to, to know that there's st- there are things that are off with um, Tom Ripley is uh, the, the opening title. You know, they, it, it's a, a cycle of all these descriptors yeah. that are in the place of talented for Ripley. It goes through all these different things. Like Deceitful was one, I believe. They're, and they're all in these different fonts. And the yeah. one it ends on is talented, and but it's like a dark font. Like... The font looks like very kind of um, archaic and just like kind of evilish to give you like a verbal, I'm sorry, not a verbal, a visual representation of, look, there's something not right about this individual. So that sets you up from the beginning. But also, you're seeing a lot of wipes in the beginning that are like splintered wipes, which give you the idea that this is a splintered personality person because all these wipes are happening when it's focusing on Tom himself and yeah. his life in New York. And I think that also plays into your whole um, aspect of the reflections in the mirrors because, yeah. you know, when mirrors splinter type thing. Yeah. So that was interesting. Although I will say that the whole, like, splintering wipe thing, I found annoying. I thought it looked cheap and stupid. But I, I see the reason for it, and it was just a small, annoying thing about the film. So. And, well, and not every not every film will be perfect. I mean, there's no, got to no, be a no. flaw or two in there to uh, to go ahead and, and make the film a little interesting. In fact, sometimes the flaws, like a shattered mirror, actually help m- focus on something that you wouldn't see otherwise. Yeah. Another thing that, that came up for me big time in this film was something that I like to preach to people all the time. Don't lie, because it's going to catch up with you at some point. Yeah. And you see that perfectly in this film that once Tom Ripley believes that he's, he's got where he wants to be, he's safe, he's good, one of his lies or multiple lies catch up with him. Yeah. And then he's uneasy, he's in, he's in a predicament, he's, he's got to deal with it. Like Someone's got to die. When he's in, in Venice, you can just see him on edge the entire time. Yeah. Because Mr. Greenleaf is there, there's a detective. He figures that, that his time is pretty much up. Yeah. And uh, he... He sits down across from the detective thinking that he's going to be going away in handcuffs. 
Yeah. And uh, then the detective tells them all these things that happened, and they're like, and oh, by the way, Mr. Greenleaf appreciates the work that you've done. He's going to actually give you the money from the rest of, of Dickie's trust fund. Yeah. Well, it, and it's cool because to see in the beginning how on top of things he is, yeah. and he's able to adapt very quickly and come up with excuses for things that don't, that just don't seem right, um, that starts to erode as the film goes on. And there are times where you just see him floundering. He's just like, ah, I, I, I... Yeah, and to, to see how he was so composed in the beginning, and then at the end he's just kind of losing it, it's because he cre- keeps creating lies upon lies upon lies upon lies. You can't keep them straight at that point. Right. And you need to remember, okay, what lie did I tell to this, this person? Thing. What lie do I tell to this person so that I don't contradict that, that lie in case they talk to each other? Like, it's this web that's too hard to stay with. And it's also very different different at the beginning of the movie because, like you said, there, the fact that his name is not even Tom Ripley yeah. is very important because he's living a lie on a daily basis just to try and survive. Mm-hmm. You know, And it's not really clear if he had been at Princeton as a piano tuner uh, because that was something that was said about a person named Tom Ripley. So if he wasn't a piano tuner at, at Princeton, he must have known someone named Tom Ripley along the way but also his lies were smaller at that point because like he lets Mr. Greenleaf think that he was at prison as a student Mm -hmm. you know and so that's easier to keep track of than oh yeah I told this person that I'm someone completely different and I told this person that I'm Tom and this person thinks I'm Dickie and this person you know so he he's able to manage the small lies you know and he's able to live the transitory story but the overall, when it gets to be big and life-encompassing, he can't make the spin work anymore. Right. Um, and honestly, I would, I would be interested to see, af- after the end of the film, how many audience members thought that his actual name in the film was Tom Ripley. Yeah. Like that character's name. Because I think that people wouldn't think about that aspect and would just be like, oh yeah, his name was Tom Ripley. But you have to remember that from the get-go, that was a lie. So you don't even know what his real name was at all. Yeah. But it was it was crafted so well, and he was so convincing, that I bet a lot of people at the end were like, yeah, he, he was Tom Ripley. I wonder if that guy who broke his arm at the very beginning was Tom Ripley. Was Tom Ripley. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think that's kind of a, what the insinuation is. And he just goes with it because that's what name he's given by Mr. Greenleaf. And yeah. he can't choose a different one after that. No. Um, but another thing I wanted to say is... Matt Damon, the way he changes, the way he acts is so good in this. He adapts as an actor much the way that Tom Ripley adapts um, to his situations. Um, he, when, he be, when his character becomes Dickie uh, Greenleaf, he changes his mannerisms, he changes the way he talks, he changes the way he looks. Now, the way he looks, that's not him. That's, you know, costume and yeah. makeup. But... The mannerisms and the way he acts, and there, there's also a small thing. His the way he talks and and with his mouth and the way he smiles and everything is significantly more toothy yeah. when he is Tom Ripley. Significantly less toothy when he is Dickie Greenleaf. Yeah, and you you should notice the speech pattern too. Yeah. it's very different. Yeah, yeah. Look at these subtle things, and it it was phenomenal. Like I was just like Matt Damon killed it in yeah. this film. Well, in more ways than one. He killed some people as the character, but he did a hell of a job acting in this film. Yeah, and and honestly, everybody did a a fantastic job. I mean, Jude Law was great. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow was great. Um, And I I thought that um, Kate Blanchett, she didn't get as much screen time as the others. She did great, too. But she did a really good job as well. I don't think there was anyone that, that didn't stack up. No. I think everyone did a really good job. One thing that I wanted to talk about was just, like, the heartbreak in this scene right after Tom bludges Dick, bludgeons Dickie to death, mm-hmm. you know? And you see, like, the, the blood pooling in the bottom of the boat, and it pans up slowly, and Tom is hugging Dickie's body. Yeah, he's able to get as close to him as he wanted yeah. to, um... Because he wants to be him. And that's where, you know, I was questioning, is he actually, did he actually love Dickie, or did he just yeah. want to be Dickie yeah. so bad that he confused it for love? Um, I think that the, the the death scene there was very surprisingly grisly, in yeah. my opinion, and gory, but I think it was appropriate because it made you uncomfortable, and it needed to. Yeah. Like, that was the point. 
Yeah. So I think if, it if played you, really well. If you had walked away from that and it's like, oh yeah, someone's dead, then then you miss the point of the movie. Right. You know. But then you also see, you know, like you were talking about, he's cuddled up with the dead body, and that's definitely a moment where, as a viewer, you're supposed to be like, yeah, he's off. This yeah. guy is really mentally off. Yeah. He's got problems. Yeah. So, very effective way to do it. There ain't nothing like hu- hugging a dead body. <laughs> a quote directly from Jordan. <laughs> Yeah. Everyone go ahead and use that. Or please don't. It makes me sound horrible. <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, use it, but don't cite Jordan then. No. No. Well, I kind of think that, unless you have something else, we've really covered this film. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I, 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 think I feel it, like there are probably more things we could talk about. We're, we're running yeah. thin on time. One thing I did want to mention was Tom at the opera. Because this was one of the few moments where he's pretending to be Dicky. But Tom, the person behind Tom actually shines through. Because you see him in the very beginning as being in love with classical music, being in love with the opera, and working in a theater so that he can be close to that. Mm-hmm. So when he actually gets to go to the opera, it excites him more than anything else in the entire film. Well, and he's also doing something that is inherently not Dickie, because everyone says Dickie hates opera. Yeah. And he goes, he's supposed to be Dickie, but he goes, and... He took a risk by doing that, and it, it, it bit him. It bit him hard. It bit him big time. Yeah. So, in that, at that point, he learned a hard lesson of you got to stick to the person. You can't be yourself if you're going to take over someone's identity. Yeah. A yeah. lesson to all you listeners: if you're going to assume someone else's identity, you can't be yourself. A lesson to all you listeners: <laughs> if you're going to assume somebody's identity, don't go to the opera. Yeah, don't, don't. But I think it was a really good scene where they have that that dual death scene yeah. in the opera, yeah. and he's like crying because he's internalizing it, um, comparing it to when he had to kill Dickie. Exactly. And he loved this man, and he's just like, oh god, the tie-in was too strong. Yeah, yeah. This is a nice moment. So I think I think that's pretty much it for what I have. Um, let's go ahead and, and rate the movie. Do you want to go first? Sure. First of all, Tim Morgan, thank you so much for. Uh, for suggesting this one. It is one I had been wanting to see, but I don't know when I would have gotten to it if yeah. I did. You know, there are plenty of movies I end up putting off, and I just never get back to them. So thank you, even though you didn't see it. Um, but see it, because <laughs> yeah. it's good. Uh, this film, the acting was top-notch, especially Matt Damon. Like I said, you know, he was able to change. He did the voice impersonations. He was able to change his mannerisms, his behaviors, the way he looked. He, he did such an outstanding job with this. The writing was very good. The screen ad- 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 the screenplay adapted from the novel was done really well. Yeah. The directing was really good. The scenery was awesome. The costumes were great. Another thing we didn't talk about, the score. The score was so good in yeah. this film. Yeah, it was. Overall, it played so well. It was a really good film. Not the best film I've ever seen. I do think some stuff definitely could have been shaved out of it. Yeah, um, it was a little long. It was long. It was like and two hours and like 15 minutes, somewhere around there. Um, I, I'm going to give it four stars, and I think it's a strong four. Yeah. I think this is one of those movies that that works well on a lot of different levels. I think it works especially well in that it if you watch the movie and you become invested in it, you don't you don't leave the movie feeling the same way that you came into it, you know. And it, it definitely changes your 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 thought patterns for the rest of the day, and it makes you look at things differently. Um, so I think it does a very good job in in drawing in the viewers. I think it does a very good job in treating the subject matter with both a, a sense of respect and also a sense of horror. Yeah. You know, and it does uh, it does a very good job of making uh, people feel uncomfortable yet question why they're feeling uncomfortable truly is a thriller yeah so in in that regard i think that that this movie is is very strong um i I would go ahead and give it four stars as well all right so a overall four star rating yeah for the talented mr ripley for this podcast that is a very good showing on on this podcast so great job i think they're only uh, from me personally, I've only rated two movies four and a half, yeah. and nothing at five. Yeah. So I think my two four and a halfs were um, Cabin in the Woods, obviously, and, and Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh, where was Holy Motors? Was that a four star? Uh, it was four. Yeah. Okay. So Holy Motors and Talented Mr. Ripley at the same level. Yeah. Great films. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, 
Once again, thank you so much, Tim. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. If you guys want to hear your films that you'd like to hear reviewed, reviewed, um, give us a rating and review on iTunes, and then send us an email at mostexcellentmovienight at gmail.com, and let us know you did it, and we will jump your selection to the beginning. Now, we hope that you enjoy feeling a little creepy, <laughs> a little disturbed, a bit macabre, because next week we're going to be starting... Oktoberfest. Oh, yes. For us, Oktoberfest is not about beer. It is about horror movies. Yes. So. And this is my time to shine. We already talked about it. Jordan will be making two horror film picks. I will be making two picks, and we will take one fan pick. Mm -hmm. So let's see what it is. I am very excited, as you can probably guess. Yeah. So we're, we're going we're gonna to have fun with this. We're going to be... Uh, a little disturbed. <laughs> and we'll just see what happens. So tune in next week, and uh, we hope you enjoy. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Carlin and Jordan's Most Excellent Movie Night. Our theme music was provided by Sweet Wave Audio. To find more royalty-free music for your own projects, check out sweetwaveaudio.co.uk. And special thanks to Ariana Ramos for her graphic design savvy helping us with our album art. Visit our website at mostexcellentmovienight.com to listen to other episodes, give us your opinion, and share with us other movies you'd like to have reviewed. You can also contact us through our email address, mostexcellentmovienight.com at gmail.com. We would love to read them on the air. Also, if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes, we would be your friends for life. For sure. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to Carlin and Jordan's Most Excellent Movie Night, where movies are most excellent. This has been a Nerd Circle Podcast production.